welcome to Divine Politics Across Countries, a series of podcasts discussing how countries are politically connected and also discovering how they're unique. This is your host, Lily Devine. Today, I'll be chatting with Chloe Swarbrick about the relationship between illicit drug regulation and racially imbalanced incarceration rates. Then, we're going to discuss COVID-19. Chloe is a Member of Parliament representing the New Zealand Green Party. As a political science student at a relatively liberal university, I had been surrounded by a lot of Swarbrick supporters. Originally, I thought she was admired solely because she is the youngest Member of Parliament and because of her liberal ideas. Although she is young, at the age of 25, and she is liberal, I have come to realise that she is also a well-spoken and sometimes outspoken person, with well-reasoned and researched views. Even if you don't agree with what she says, you have to admit that she says it well. Hey you, Chloe. Kia ora, how you doing? Not too bad, how about yourself? I am good. Thanks for joining me today. No worries, thank you for having me. No worries. So, let's get right into it. Of course, during these times, it's important to be discussing COVID-19. I think recently we've we've all been a little bit bogged down almost by this constant negative bad news. Obviously, at this sort of time, it's completely understandable that there is a lot of bad news because there are a lot of bad things happening around the world. But do you think there are any... I don't want to say positive, but non-negative things that might have come out of this devastating pandemic? Yeah, so I think this is a worthwhile question. Um, And I think it's important to always preface and start with the fact that this is a devastating virus. We haven't seen anything like this in the lives of anybody who is currently living. Um, The greatest uh, kind of similarity in recent history or similar situation rather uh, is from the 1920s and what was experienced across Europe during that time. So I think that uh, we firstly have to recognize that as of today, that being Friday the 27th of March, it's been confirmed that over half a million people across the world, uh, and that is just those who have been recorded as uh, having having COVID-19, so have been tested uh, and have been put in front of medical uh, systems. Half a million people have been impacted uh, directly by having this virus. And that doesn't count the millions of people, if not you know, nearly billions. I read the other day that approximately one-fifth of the world's population right now is experiencing some form of lockdown. So it's massive, the scale of disruption. Uh, people are dying uh, and people are impacted with regard to the loss of their jobs and their incomes and are still experiencing massive pressure in terms of the cost of living and otherwise. So there are huge challenges here. And I think that there's been some valid critique raised, uh, particularly by uh, Indigenous activists and those who are at the forefront of the climate justice movement, uh, is that there has been some really brilliant commentary out of those kind of sectors of society, speaking to those who are without consideration, Mm. lauding uh, the so-called slowdown 
as a result of COVID-19 as a good thing because it has reduced pollution, are teetering dangerously close to celebrating eco-fascism. If anything, what this period, uh, I hope, is educating us about is our power collectively to come together in solidarity during times of struggle. Our very quick response, particularly uh, in Aotearoa in New Zealand, and I'd note that we have moved a heck of a lot faster than a lot of other nations, and we have never before seen these powers used in peacetime uh, Aotearoa in New Zealand. And the kind of compliance that we are seeing from citizens across the country, I think, is immense and deserves to be congratulated. Uh, we should all have a level of gratitude towards our fellow citizens and our communities here because ultimately the success of this relies on all of us playing by the rules, right? Uh, but not all of us are exposed to the same level of risk or the same level of vulnerability, whether that is health-wise, mental health-wise, or in terms of our financial precarity. So I think the, the positive, if we can take one from this, or a silver lining, is that during this crisis, we have seen uh, the cropping up of a number of different Facebook groups, Twitter groups, uh, kind of Google Docs, uh, student volunteer armies that are working together to basically redistribute resources, provide and perform small tasks for those who need it. And in turn, we have really started to showcase and feel our social interdependence with each other. Oftentimes that is far more implicit. We aren't so consciously aware of it. But right now I feel as though we are very aware that we need each other. We need this network in order to get through this and not just to survive, but to thrive when we come out the other side. So my hope is that as we progress uh, through this experience together, that we recognize that collective action and that community organization and that that redistribution of resources isn't something that should be limited just to uh, unprecedented mass disruption in the circumstances of pandemics that can translate through to our daily lives. We don't have to go back to the so-called normal that we were all experiencing when so many of us were exposed to precarious situations in housing and education or in employment uh, when this is all over. Instead, we have the opportunity to reimagine the world to make sure that we aren't socially constructing groups of people who become known as vulnerable. Instead, we all have the opportunity to build a more equitable world at the outcome. That's a incredible response to a perhaps slightly badly worded question but <laughs> no not at all I completely understand the situation right I think I think for many people um the we are struggling to find the new vernacular yeah here. and um I've just started uh, doing these uh Facebook updates every morning at 10 past eight which I was really, just to be perfectly honest with you, like, I was really struggling. I've been in lockdown, as you said before, mm. for about um, 10 or 11 days now. And I'm sharing a 60 square meter apartment with two bedrooms, uh, sorry, one bedroom and one lounge space. So it's two rooms in total mm. with me and my partner who are both working, which means that when we're both on calls, we need to be in that one of us is in the bedroom, one of us is in the lounge. Yeah. Uh, and there has been, 
some serious challenges when it comes to mental health. You know, I'm clinically depressed and I am fortunate to obviously have the support of mental health workers and the resource to be able to access them um, and the support of an understanding family. But this has been a really challenging time for me. So I think that this is going to be a really testing time for all New Zealanders and actually globally for everybody, even for those of us who think that we are the most well-adjusted, it's going to test us. Mm. And that is okay. <laughs> um, we are going to struggle to find the words. We are going to struggle to do this perfectly because there is no perfect. We are all figuring out how we're supposed to do this and making it up as we go along. So I think the most important thing, everybody keeps reminding each other to be kind, but that kindness shouldn't just be something which is external. It should also be internalized. So be kind to yourself as well, Lily. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. I think it is important to realize the enormity of the situation and really consider how this is going to impact yourself and other people. And try look at the positive totally. sides, even though there is so much negative, and try support each other. Yeah, and also remember too, um, and this is something which I, so I'm the caucus uh, musterer or whip, as it's traditionally called, and I've been calling all of our MPs in the Greens uh, over the past few days, just making sure that everybody's all good, but also reminding everybody, which I think is a really important reminder for the general public, that in this moment of immense upheaval and massive life change and routine disruption you cannot expect from yourself the same level of productivity that you are used yeah. to <laughs> um, and you also need to start setting in place some meaningful boundaries as we are operating um, in this kind of brave new world for lack of a better term at least for the next uh, month or so we need to remember that it is very difficult to demarcate our work life and our life life, our family life, because we are doing both of those things in the same space, which is why, um, you know, this morning on that Facebook Live, I reminded everybody that it's Friday. <laughs> if you work a nine to five Monday to Friday job, you should be taking the weekend, you know, even though there is this pandemic and even though um, that means that for many people there is an increased flexibility to work because uh, things have changed, you know, a pandemic doesn't stop the fact that you have rights as a worker and as a citizen of this country. And that probably takes me full circle to the constitutional conversation. So I will stop there and <laughs> pass yeah. back over to you. And even giving yourself those rights, even if your employers are giving you the time, it's still now you don't have someone telling you what to do every second of the day. It is important to have those boundaries for yourself. Big time, big time. And what has it been like trying to keep up with the political world from home when you're a bit more detached? So it's been really weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I sit on Parliamentary Business Committee, which is the um, kind of group of the speaker and the deputy speaker 
So Trevor and, and Tolly, uh, the leader of the house, the shadow leader of the house, so Chris Hopkins and Jerry Brownlee, and then all of the whips or musterers from all of the different political parties. And as of a week and a half ago, Trevor Mallard, as the Speaker, passed the Speaker's ruling, which enables all of us to meet uh, via distance, so via online kind of web chat. And that has been transformational because it's meant that everybody has been able to participate, which has obviously been really challenging and difficult for me uh, over the last parliamentary sitting week when I wasn't able to uh, video chat into my select committee meetings uh, while I was on self-isolation and the rest of the country wasn't, uh, which meant that I had to get other colleagues to cover my select committees because they had to be there physically in person. So it's kind of forced Parliament to catch up with the rest of the world yeah. in terms of technological development. <laughs> uh, but it has also meant that there has been a really interesting kind of cultural shift. And I'm interested to see how much this changes or not. But because there is a solidarity and a shared experience in what we are all collectively going through right now, that has meant that there has probably been more empathy and compassion and the shrinking of the distance between political parties. Mm. And interestingly, obviously, that was put by the Leader of the Opposition, Simon Bridges, uh, in his contribution in Parliament when we went into that urgency motion. Uh, but there has been a really, really wonderful thing that has occurred in a unity to respond uh, here and to ensure that everybody is aware that all of us have to be in this together, otherwise, we are all not good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody has to play by the rules in order to make sure that we break the chain. If somebody steps outside of their bubble, they don't just pop their bubble, they also pop the bubble of the person who they're speaking to, you know? Mm. So um, that unity, I think, has been probably the biggest uh, cultural shift that I've noted. But on top of that, it's been really peculiar uh, just experiencing people in their, for lack of a better term, kind of natural surroundings and natural environments. So, uh, for example, when we zoomed into business committee the other day, uh, you know, you had all of the different government and opposition whips uh, with their webcams on and they were in their lounge or in their kitchen and weren't dressed in the usual formal attire that you have to be for parliament. So it's far more humanizing in that respect, which I think, again, um, only compounds the kind of empathy and humanity uh, that is really required at this point in time. But with regard to the practical uh, operation of Parliament, we have uh, continued to have business committee meetings, select committee meetings will continue. Uh, Parliament itself, so house business, has been adjourned, but everything else continues largely as normal. So there's just a lot of video calls happening around the country between 120 MPs at the moment. I can only imagine. Um, and you do say that we, well, you have to unite against this huge not threat but a huge issue but at the same time America or well, the United States really has stayed quite separated in the two main parties and I think we do need to recognize that it has been a major effort to overcome those divisions and 
unite together because I think it would have been a completely different situation if the two parties hadn't cooperated. Oh, totally. And I think as well, um, you know, as I have sought to constructively feed back to people who are, for example, critical of uh, the government's response, of course, of course, the response would have been different, you know, in terms of the budgetary response and the policy response. Of course, it would have been slightly different had any one political party been holding the reins. Mm. And that's not just if National was holding the reins, that's if all of the Greens were holding the reins. That's if all of New Zealand first were holding the reins. But what you have here is a negotiated response between the three political parties of government, which we think has to um, strike the balance between the needs of all New Zealanders. Uh, And of course, we will continue advocating for things to be better, as we always do. But at this point in time, we have to really consider the most meaningful and constructive way to achieve those outcomes, which is not trying to hype up panic or to spread fear or to spread anger or hysteria or angst or anxiety or any of those negative feelings. It is to offer solutions. So that's what we're focused on. Even where there is a divergence of opinion, it is to start from the basic fundamental point that all of us need to unite to get through this together and that you can do politics without being a dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) That is a very important thing to keep in mind. So there's been some global awareness around the high rates of incarceration of people of colour. Despite only making up 15% of New Zealand's population, the native people of this country, Māori, make up over half of the prison population. In your opinion... How much of that is due to New Zealand's drug prohibition? But as you've just articulated, there uh, within our prison population, it is massively disproportionately overrepresented by Māori. And that, I think, in and of itself, lends to some really problematic, inherently racist views that we have uh, in this country uh, towards our Indigenous peoples. And... <sighs> Again, to start working through all of that kind of stuff, if you think about um, in the context of, you know, the war on drugs, which you raised, uh, (laughs) there is absolutely no data, in fact, there's data to the opposite, uh, which shows that pretty much every demographic, every race, every ethnicity utilises or tries substances, illicit substances, to the same degree. It just so happens that whether as a result of over-policing of certain areas or certain demographics or because there is uh, greater over-reporting uh, of those demographics and their usage, that uh, there is a disproportionate picking up and prosecution of Māori inside of our system. And I've seen this firsthand when I, uh, to take it away from kind of the systemic critique, when I was uh, back at law school, I remember being absolutely shocked. We were tasked in our criminal uh, law class to go and sit in the high court and to watch the sentencing. And I remember, uh, I would have been about 19, 20, sitting in that high court being the only uh, observer in the public gallery. Uh, watching this young man in his early 20s who was a Pakeha man 
who looked like he had a substantial amount of resources because his parents were there. Um, his lawyer, who was mighty fancy, had obviously given him the advice to get enrolled in trades training. Uh, he'd just got engaged to his girlfriend, and by the mere presence of his parents, the judge could impute that he had familial support. And off the back of all of that, this young man who was being charged with the importation of either, I think it was class B substances, to the tune of quarter of a million dollars, was given home detention. Uh, and I have seen, and again, that's not to say that I think that he should have gotten prison, because I don't think that prison is necessarily a solution for all of these social ills, but it is to say that had he been a young brown man without the familial support there and without a fancy lawyer, but instead a public defender who is obviously overworked and underpaid and all of those other things, that the sentence probably would have been different and he probably would have gone to jail. And that highlights the biggest injustices inside our so-called criminal justice system is that there is differential treatment uh, based on who you are and the resources that you have access to, which make no difference on the crime that you have committed, right? So just to really walk this through for people, when you are looking at the process of somebody going through a being prosecuted inside the criminal courts, the first port of call is the case itself, which determines whether somebody is uh, guilty or not guilty. Uh, if they're not guilty, obviously, they're then free. But if they are found to be guilty or they themselves say that they're guilty, they will then go through to a system called sentencing. That sentencing is, in a nutshell, determined based on what are called aggravating and mitigating factors. Aggravating factors are obviously things like violence or predetermination of the intention to you know, undertake this crime or otherwise. But the mitigating factors are what are essentially largely privilege. Uh, and what I mean by that is it is stuff like the uh, support of your broader family, a safe home to go back to, uh, the access to education to supposedly reform your life or otherwise. And I think if we are not questioning or challenging or looking into any of this stuff, we ultimately end up continuing to kick the can down the road and perpetuate the problems that have always existed. And the greatest irony that smacks me in the face of all of this is that we consistently say stuff like, oh, why does this stuff keep happening? Um, we just need to keep taking a harder approach that we've always taken. And it's like, hold up. Why don't we inspect that perhaps the approach that we're taking is demonstrably failing and a different approach is required? So when it comes to particularly the prohibition of illicit substances, I mean, I could rant on about that forever, but the general gist of it is that if you look back at the development of this war on drugs and the approach that we have co-opted out of the United States, which obviously was uh, then manifest in the Vienna Convention uh, in the United Nations, where we told ourselves in 1998, if we massively increased penalties and criminalized all the people who use substances, then we'd have a drug-free world by 2008. Uh, of course, far from achieving that, things have got far worse. Is that uh, it has ended up 
that there has been massively racist, uh, massively unequal approaches to different types of substances. So if you speak to a um, molecular chemist or otherwise, uh, you'll find that the substances of powdered cocaine and crack cocaine are largely the same in terms of the effect that they have on somebody's body. But in the United States, there was, I believe it was in the 1970s or 80s, uh, the passage of something which are colloquially referred to as the Rockefeller Laws, which massively disproportionately placed uh, harsher criminal penalties on the use of crack cocaine uh, than the use of powdered cocaine. And, I mean, you can fill in the blanks as much as you like there because crack cocaine was obviously used primarily by uh, those who were selling on the streets and were predominantly black and brown communities, whereas powdered cocaine was primarily used by the privileged classes, particularly the white, uh, white people. And that uh, was more so associated with social hierarchy. And in turn, we had the development of this law which reflected not the harm that these substances could cause, but instead uh, disproportionate penalties for different demographics inside of our society, which inherently, I think, if you read into it, is racist. For sure. Well, in my opinion, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I think we're out of time now, but thank you so much for joining me today, Chloe. You've given us a lot of food for thought. All good. I hope that you have a wonderful uh, rest of the time Thank you. Uh, during you. your period of self-isolation. Um, look after yourself. And I'd also just say, um, for folks who are struggling with mental health stuff, uh, we have been talking, myself and the Office of the Minister of Health, uh, about increasing capacity for mental health supporters. So if you are feeling as though you need some professional support, as opposed to just reaching out to friends and whanau, then um, call or text 1737 because there are people out there who care about you and love you. I will put that link in the bio when I post this up. Thank you so much for your time. Me No stress, Lily. Have a good one. You too. Catch you later.